I have this vague memory of being a kid and asking my father about the literal nature of Torah study. Are we supposed to actually believe that Moses split the sea? That Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt? That God showed up in a burning bush? And he said, they're stories. Stories that are supposed to teach us lessons. So this week, as we start to get into a clearer narrative landscape with the story of Abraham and the birth of monotheism and the Jewish people, I've asked one of my favorite storytellers to join us, writer and director Dan Kwan. Along with his co-creator Dan Scheinhart, collectively they're known as the Daniels, Dan has created some of my favorite art, having written and directed, among other things, the film Swiss Army Man, and DJ Snake's music video for Turn Down For What, and yes, both of those include some biblical feats of bodily functions. But Dan also grew up as a fundamentalist Christian, a line of belief that claims the Bible to be an historically accurate document. While Dan has since stepped away from the literal interpretation of his religious upbringing, I was excited to welcome a new perspective into the fold and see how expanding our study here on the show might shed some interesting light on our process of interpretation and its limits. On today's show, we'll discuss what it means to take a leap of faith Rabbi Adam will help me re-examine some preconceived notions I had of others' religious studies. And Dan will help us unpack the responsibility of both storyteller and audience when it comes to lack of exposition. What are we supposed to make of a story that doesn't give us the full picture? Stick around and find out. I'm Raviv Ullman, and welcome to the study. All right, ain't no stopping us now. We are in the third Parsha of Torah study, Lech Lecha, which means go for you. We've got Dan Kwan here. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, I'm really excited to have you. And we have some big, broad themes this week. So as is tradition, before we unpack it, I'm going to ask Rabbi Adam to take us up to 10,000 feet and give us an overview of this week's story. So this is actually my bar mitzvah portion. Um, so oh. I could chant a little bit of it for you, but only if I can go back <laughs> and do it in my 13-year-old cracking voice. Lech lecha! It was... Yeah, yeah. I think that's all you're going to get. Uh, Your bubby must have been want, so proud. We want people to uh, keep listening to this and uh, might break their speakers. Um, so Lech lecha is kind of the pivot point of Genesis. The first two Parshas of the Torah are big macro stories of origin, creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the Flood. And then in Genesis 12, the the lens, as it were, goes from a big, big wide shot over all of the world to a tiny close-up zoom on one childless couple living in Mesopotamia who wake up one morning in their 70s and get an announcement that they're supposed to leave everything they've ever known behind 
and go on a journey to a place that God isn't even going to tell them where they're going and there to start a new nation. And the, the key word that gives us the name of the Parsha, Lech Lecha, go forth, go out, really is the theme here about, about leaving on a journey where you don't know 100% where it's headed, but you are willing to put one foot in front of the other and start uh, making your way toward what you hope will be a better and a different life. And that feels really apropos for where we're living right now, just trying to put one foot in front of the other um, in an uncertain world. And so I'm really excited to be talking about this Parsha. Yeah, that part, one foot in front of the other, simply is really relatable, definitely. If we're looking at the story itself, it seems that Abraham doesn't, as far as we know, have much of a relationship with God at the time of God's appearance. He has no children. So I'm wondering what we're supposed to make of a decision to leave everything that he knows, to go on a journey to an undefined place immediately upon being told uh, to do so by God. Because God promises to make Abraham a great nation. He blesses Abraham, blesses his name, blesses those who bless him, and curses those who curse him. I'm wondering how do we read Abraham's decision to blindly obey as anything other than greed? So one of the really interesting things about uh, the way that this Torah portion is structured is we hop in on Abraham's life when he's a 70-year-old. Mm. We don't actually get any backstory other than the name of his father and grandfather. We don't know anything about him as a young man. We don't know why God picks him. We don't know what his motivations might be to leave. And the rabbis have spent the last 2,000 years spinning all of these midrashim, all of these legends, trying to dig into Abraham's character and figure out who he is and why God should tap him on the shoulder. And I, I even wonder, okay, so we know about him leaving at 70, um, getting the call. Was this the first time that God had been reaching out or had God been calling every morning for like decades and finally Abraham picks up the phone? We just don't know. So, you know, is this uh, motivated by wanting blessing? Uh, maybe, but we don't know enough about Abraham's character to know what motivates him. And that leaves us open to a lot of interpretive, imaginative kind of storytelling, which is, I think, mm -hmm. part of what makes this Parsha and this character really particularly exciting. It just makes me think of like how in so many ways in storytelling, uh, what we're trying to do is combine the big picture, like what you're saying with the Genesis and all these kind of formative myths from, from, uh, of creation and things like that. But then also combining the very personal, like how small can the story be and how big can it be at the same time? Can it be universal, but so personal that it feels, uh, unique to one person? And one thing that comes to mind is like one of the appealing things about Abraham is that he, he is basically an everyman, you know, because like you're saying, no one has much context on him. Um, he could be anyone. And I feel like that's like a recurring thing in a lot of stories, especially the Bible. I mean, even if you like, uh, for those of you guys who don't know me, um, I'm 
Dan Kwan, and uh, I used to be a fundamentalist Christian. I was raised that way, um, and I kind of grew out of it in the past like 15 years. But uh, for a very long time, that was like my upbringing. And so, like even Jesus is like kind of the typical everyman, or at least his parents were. You know, they were just sort of, uh, you know, it was a carpenter and and uh, a couple of nobodies, and God choosing these nobodies to then become the focus of of his entire, um, you know, his entire movement is like, you know, I think very powerful. And so like Abraham, I think, gains power because of how little we know about him. Mm, that's really interesting. I, I mean, I, I want to discuss that, the idea, or I guess question, if we are being asked to uh, follow blindly, is this a call for blind faith? Because that seems uh, very different from the Judaism that I grew up with. But because you brought it up, Dan, I, I've been excited to study with you for a while now, um, because it seems that your story specifically is regarding to faith is almost a reverse parallel of Abraham's story, where he headed towards God, and you actually headed away from God. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about your journey and where you started um, and kind of now where you've ended up. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'll try to I'll try to keep it short. You know, I think these these stories can have a lot of twists and turns um, when it comes to the, the, that sort of uh, question of faith and what 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 you actually believe Um uh, but I was raised in a a fairly strict Christian household. I went to Sunday school every every week. Uh, I spent most of my grade school either in like a Christian private school or homeschooled. Um, and so most of my life was wrapped around this evangelical Christian lifestyle. It wasn't uh, like even in high school when we dug deeper, I kind of really embraced it. I I started reading a lot more uh, um, like about the historical context of the Bible and, and just kind of digging deeper into um, different things like apologetics, which is the um, <laughs> the defense of Christianity, just like because because I I'm, I'm a fairly um, logic driven person. I like to think th- things through and, um, you know, things like blind faith that you're talking about um, are, are harder to reconcile with that kind of brain. And so I would spend a lot of time reasoning with myself and reasoning with the Bible and re- wrestling with my Christianity uh, from that perspective. And, you know, one thing I've learned from all of that is that uh, the mind is is pretty powerful and we can reason our way into any direction we want to. And so it's actually a very dangerous thing to rely too much on logic and reasoning. But that's that's uh, for another time. Essentially, I, I, I went to college. I ended up going to a very liberal college um, where Christianity was not very popular. And it, it just became like a slow war of attrition where uh, every day, you know, I would open up my my mind a little bit more and find out a little bit more of the, the my blind spots and the things I didn't learn in school. You know, I went into college not really believing in evolution, you know, like all, all the typical things that you that comes with the uh, the Christian lifestyle, or at least the American uh, version of Christianity. The more I learned about those things, the more that it, it just attracted what um, attracted the part of my brain that was uh, uns- dis- yeah, just unsatisfied with the Christian teachings. And so like learning about evolution and natural selection and, and all these things kind of opened up my brain and just started to make connections that made so much more sense and just kind of resolved a lot of problems I had um, with my belief and 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 on top of all of that i just ended up becoming more just happier i was i was really unhappy with uh, living through this sort of cycle of 
of sin and redemption and guilt, you know, like in, in so many different ways, like that, that was what my relationship with Christianity was, was like a lot of guilt over the fact that I could not control my impulses, you know, and like, obviously now I know that's just human, it's just human nature. It was freeing actually for me to let that all go. And now I'm, I find that I'm very thankful for my uh, upbringing and very thankful for just being able to grow up in a uh, religion as a foundation, but also, um, I think of myself more of a agnostic now. Um, there's, there's still the possibility of, of bigger picture things at play, but I'm, uh, I, I like to look at the world through a more uh, deterministic lens. I think there's something interesting of a about the idea of blind faith and the journey to and from religion as a whole. Rabbi Adam, do you see this Parsha as a call towards just answering whenever God calls? Is it, is that blind faith by definition? Yeah, you keep using this term blind faith. And I think um, that's almost by definition a, a judgment call. Okay. Like blind faith sounds like voluntarily making yourself blind. Um, and certainly some people operate with faith that way. Um, they don't question it. They don't dig into it. They just accept and are obedient. And if they don't follow all of the rules, they accept that they're bad. And it sounds like, Dan, maybe that was part of some of what was going on for you, the sense that that there has to be one way to believe. And, and, and maybe that's not, that's not the case. I want to hear more. I think with Abraham, like, everything is a leap of faith. It doesn't need to be a religious thing. It doesn't need to be a God thing. The idea that you could make a life with a partner and actually commit to a whole lifetime, that's a leap of faith. The idea of having a kid, that's a huge leap of faith. Um, setting out in a career, you both have, you know, been for years in this movie making and television and Hollywood world. Like, Nobody gets into the world that you're in without taking a leap of faith because more people fail at it than succeed. So you just kind of have to go and try. So I'm really hesitant to judge Abraham's choice to go because I think if people didn't take those sorts of leaps, not knowing where they're headed, we'd be paralyzed. We wouldn't ever do anything meaningful. Do I think that I would leave everything behind because of a voice in my head, you know, one morning when I'm 70? I don't know. Um, but uh, but I've certainly had the experience of saying, I don't know how this is going to work out, but let's try it and see what happens. That's a really nice way of putting it. And maybe I won't be so quick to judge on blind faith. It's, it's interesting to me because I really didn't, I grew up with the practice in religion of questioning everything. Um, so it's something that I feel unfamiliar with. But you're right. I feel Now looking back, I feel like there's a million times where I've taken a blind leap into something that I had no idea where I was headed. One of my uh, favorite things to say to a couple when I'm doing a wedding um, comes from the writer E.L. Doctorow who uh, once was reflecting on how you write a novel. And he said, writing a novel is like driving at night. You can only see as far as the headlights shine, but you can make the whole trip that way. And I just, I like, I love that line. Um, and I keep coming back to it over and over again. You don't actually know where all of the twists and turns are coming on the road, but as long as you've got enough light to be able to see a little bit in front of you to be able to move forward, can actually make the whole trip that way. 
And I like to think that that's how Abraham was functioning. Not that he needed to know the end of the story, but he had a sense that there was enough light here to be able to let him uh, let him get started. I'm always curious about myth and stories and basically the the context with from which they were born and the uti- the social utility of them at the time because I feel like uh, you know the interesting thing about you know the Old Testament and the Torah in general is it, it's been it's survived all this time through all these different historical contexts and, and kind of landed in so many different ways. And um, I'm wondering of, of the utility of something where uh, of, of a story where someone is able to kind of, like, like you said, just ignore all of the, the risks and the fears and, and all the things in the, in the kind of distant future and, and uh, take one step forward at a time and what that was maybe useful for then um, because I'm, I'm thinking particularly, you know, I, I've been reading up on Abraham again, just reminding myself of the story. And the thing that kind of, uh, kind of keeps sticking for me is like the, the moment when he's supposed to sacrifice his son, Isaac, because that it's such a, it's such a strong, powerful story. It's, it's very evocative. It makes you, it, you know, it feels almost controversial when you really think about it. What was the utility of that story at the time? And then also maybe even today, like how do, how can we apply something like that? Cause like that, that almost feels like a more extreme version of your, your headlights thing where, uh, you know, like it's like God telling Abraham to go drunk drive or something at night. You know, it's, it's just, it's like a little, it's like it takes that, that idea of faith almost too far. And I, do, I just don't, I'm curious to hear what you think the context of it, like when it, when it first was written and then also how it applies to today. Yeah, I think reading those two stories next to each other, you know, maybe one is an example of a good blind leap and one is an example of a really problematic blind leap. I, I liked what you said about, um, you know, you, you can make the whole drive that way, but don't do it drunk. Um, (laughs) and maybe the fact that we, we know these two stories about Abraham, one that he was willing to put it all on the line for himself and another that he was willing to go so far as to commit an act of almost horrific violence on a member of his family. It's a warning that we can take it too far. We can take anything too far. So mm. yes, set out on your journeys, um, but don't let that then become um, motivation to lose your moral compass entirely. Hmm. Um, That's interesting. So it's almost it's almost like putting up guardrails for this idea of faith. And that's a really cool interpretation. But yeah, it's almost like uh, Abraham failed the test. You know, if God was testing him, he failed it. And then God saved him at the last minute. It's like, well, oh, you went too far. Okay, I'm pulling you back. I, I got this sheep for you just in case. You know, I had it, I had it ready on standby. But uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. And some you can judge the success of the journey based on the outcome, right? Abraham leaving in this Parsha leads to the founding of the family, which gives us not only Judaism, but Christianity and Islam. What's the outcome of the near sacrifice of Isaac? Nobody in Abraham's family ever speaks to each other again after that story. Abraham and Isaac don't speak to each other. Abraham and Sarah don't speak to each other. Abraham and God never speak again after that story. It's like the whole family that gets formed in the Lech Lecha moment completely dissolves in the moment of the of the binding um and so if we can be a little bit utilitarian here and judge the action by the outcome there are good leaps of faith and then there are leaps of faith that are a leap too far and wind up destroying much more than they form wow that's 
that's definitely not how uh, I grew up learning that story. So it's really interesting to hear. And I actually didn't know the the, the kind of the family dissolve, like the dissolution um, because of that event. And that's very, that's like totally changes how you look at his story overall. Um, that's really interesting. Like I, I keep thinking about today and how um, we, we do have this problem uh, with just people not believing or trusting each other um especially you know when you think about people not even trusting something as simple as like science um and and the and the leaders in science or whatever and how right now we're in this weird in between where uh our skepticism skepticism is at an all-time high but also our our faith is at an all-time high depending on what Mm -hmm. the the source of the object is and seeing now abraham's like two big moments of of faith in action as almost two sides of those spectrums like like of god trying to teach you how to um (laughs) how to be skeptical of these things while also um allowing yourself to trust and to um take those those uh risks those 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 leaps of faith forward i'm just wondering if like what can we (laughs) what can we take away from that because right now I, i just don't know how we even begin to resolve this problem of of um of you know like i said all-time high skepticism and all-time high faith it's 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 a very scary um combination it is (laughs) (laughs) i don't have an answer to that yeah me neither (laughs) but it's such a it's such a perceptive diagnosis of where we're at Mm. on one hand the, the authorities that used to exist the walter cronkite Right. And everybody Mm -hmm. listened to the same newscaster and believed what he had to say. And the authority of doctors, like that the doctor could speak and you would believe what they had to say about your health, um, is, is absolutely waning and in jeopardy to our peril. And on the other hand, you've got millions of people who actually believe that the Democratic Party is run by a satanic pedophile ring because they read a post on Reddit. Yeah. So what 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 do we do with that? <laughs> I don't think any of the three of us are going to solve it, but that, that's <laughs> just it's such a it's such a piercing diagnosis of what's wrong right now. Yeah. I think I think the Walter Cron- Cronkite example is actually really interesting because I, I you know as we're watching uh, mass media sort of um, bifurcate and split off and become like millions of little tributaries you know whereas there was one river before it's now just there's so many different options um i'm just trying again connecting it to this idea of abraham and and, um and uh his context i i you mentioned you know he I don't know, maybe i read this somewhere um, but obviously he's one of the first historical figures to um bring in this idea of, of one God, you know, monotheism. Um, and I, f- I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the, the thing that happens right before Abraham's story, or, or one of the things that precedes it is the Tower of Babel. And this moment of, again, a, a explosion of information and just uh, so many different sources of noise, uh, everyone speaking different languages, all these things. Um, and all of it kind of reminds me of this idea that I, th- I believe it was either plato or aristotle i'm i'm very fuzzy on on these facts and i'm going to paraphrase it a little bit uh but it's this idea that um democracy is a, is a beautiful wonderful thing until it becomes too democratic until it just spreads out all power amongst everything and then there's no authority anymore 
and in a lot of ways authoritarianism as like bad as that that word has um sounds is the thing that can save us from noise it can save us from this pluralism this idea that there's too much for us to take in and handle and no control and so the you know plato and aristotle were talking about how uh democracy breeds authoritarianism and then authoritarianism breeds democracy and there's the cycle that kind of keeps going back and forth and it feels like abraham came in and it almost saved the people at the time from this um polytheistic chaotic world which is kind of how the bible paints you know Ur or whatever he's from i'm 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 slowly remembering all my bible stories from when i was a kid and he comes in and he kind of just saves all of all like he's able to bring people people together with this one rule with this one god with this strong faith that is like you know what i'm I'm willing to give up a little bit of my own autonomy you know for the potential benefits or whatever which i i don't know i don't know what that looks like for us today but it feels like right now we do need one god you know so to speak we need something to um for us all of us to give up a little bit of our freedom to to create control which sounds crazy and scary but um, i'm just thinking again in, within the the context of uh of of stories and, and how they um how they affect the bigger picture and the bigger context that they exist in you know what me- that makes me think of in a in a torah context is in exodus um we'll get there in a couple of months uh, <laughs> the two big moments are the liberation and the arrival at mount sinai and receiving laws and those two things are linked, right? Pure liberation with no purpose is anarchy. Everybody going in their own direction, unable to form community, unable to figure out a direction forward. Liberation needs to be paired with some sense of communal purpose, of, of shared values, of shared norms. And when there aren't those shared values and shared norms, the result is is a chaos that can engulf everything and and that really does feel like what's what's at stake right now is do we as a collective are we even a collective Mm. do we as a nation have shared norms anymore do we have a set of shared values that can be a check on everybody going and doing what's right for them a belief that facts no longer matter objectively that you have your facts and i have my facts um that's not sustainable so i wouldn't call that authoritarianism i would call that uh, a shared belief in certain norms that are bigger than my individual preferences and whims so you're saying one of us has to go into the the mountains and and come back with some new ten commandments some updated (laughs) code or we all need to have a conversation about like what is the covenant that we're in as Americans? Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be bound to a founding document that says that we all have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that we're invested in forming a more perfect union? Yeah. Um, that I encountered this amazing teacher, a guy named I think his name is Eric Liu, um, and he runs something called Citizen University. And they hold gatherings, secular gatherings to study American texts like Mm. they're sacred texts, like they're the Bible. Um, Get together and read the Gettysburg Address and take it apart and discuss it like we're doing. Or get together and actually read the Constitution or the Federalist Papers and know what it is you're supposed to be a part of. 
Um, that, that feels like it could be a, a bit of an antidote to where we're at. Like conversations like this around American values. I want to go back to what you were saying about uh, Plato and storytelling, Dan, because Plato was adamant that storytellers should actually be outlawed, um, that he actually lobbied the lawmakers to to outlaw storytelling because of the information uh, that could be hidden within stories. And here we have a story with Abraham where there is actually a, a huge absence of information. And I'm wondering what that means. Uh, what does it mean to not have enough information to be able to actually tell the tale? I mean, for Rabbi Adam, is there a rabbinical answer to a lack of exposition? Is it something that we are supposed to project ourselves onto? And for Dan, as a storyteller, a director, a writer, you've you've written stories that actually have, a, a for your lead characters, there's a big lack of exposition through much of the movie where we actually don't know much about them. And I'm wondering what we are asking our audience members to do, what we're asking ourselves to do as storytellers, what the responsibility is there when you actually don't give that much information. What does lack of exposition mean, I guess, is my question. One thing that I've been doing lately, you know, now that I'm stuck at home for most of my my life, um, is I'm I'm re-examining a lot of the things were taught about story and the things about um, story structure and, and the rules of writing and, and things like that, that, that always felt like, like um, t- it kind of took for granted. You're like, Oh, okay, of course that's, that's what you should be doing. And one of the things that like, isn't necessarily a rule of writing, but is something that a lot of people talk about or something that is, is uh, a worthy goal when in telling a story is allowing the audience to put themselves into the story you know leave enough room for the audience to fill it in with themselves and what you're doing there is you're creating a, a handshake between you and the audience member because you're, you're you're not just feeding them everything that they need to know they're forced to think and imagine and and fill whatever voids that you have you have left and that that is like in my head like really good stories do that um now what the thing I've been like re-examining is this idea that you know, in the absence of materials for the audience to think through, that that those the bigger the gap, the more that they can kind of interpret in whatever way they want, and that's a beautiful thing. But it's also now I can see as it, it can be a very dangerous thing. Uh, one of the examples I, I I've been using lately is that you know the Matrix is such a uh, you know it's a beloved movie by and everyone everyone like thinks it's one of the best action movies ever made and one of the most memorable metaphors in the whole movie is this red pill blue pill idea and you know now that we have more context we realize this is a story uh written directed by two trans filmmakers about how uh how it feels to be a part of a system that they don't fit into um and it's kind of a very beautiful profound idea and to wrap that up into like a sci-fi cyberpunk movie is amazing but because none of that stuff was pointed at directly because we wanted the audience to think about it um, which is again really great and it's it's you know i'm sure it's it sparked you know millions of wonderful philosophical conversations Uh, but because of that there was so much room for interpretation you see groups like the alt-right who have co-opted this term of red pilling yourself oh you've been red pilled you've you've been awakened to the lies of the of of the liberal establishment or, or just the media news media establishment in general and you've been awakened to the truth finally um and so it things like that 
as a storyteller make me really take a moment and and try to try to be really self-aware of, of what uh, what we're doing when we tell stories, when we implant these ideas through metaphors into other people's minds, which is kind of what Plato was really afraid of. You know, philosophers talk about ideas, big ideas directly. And it's, you know, exactly what they mean when they, when they say the cat, they're talking about a cat. <laughs> Whereas in the movie of the matrix, the cat is a metaphor for who knows what, because you can kind of interpret it any way you want to. Um, and then to bring it back to Abraham, you know, Raviv and I, we were talking about this a little bit earlier before the recording. You know, one of the things about Abraham, that's a, that the story of Abraham is infamous for being kind of, uh, interpreted in different ways, you know, and that's how we got Islam versus Judaism. And like, like, as a storyteller, those kind of things really uh, make me kind of uh, nervous about the the power that our stories have and the power that um, that these things that just kind of come out of our heads, you know, <laughs> they can ha- how how much how much of a narrative they can set for the, our entire culture. And it's 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 kind of scary that it's not a big part of um, what you learn about when you go to film school. Obviously, you do some of it, but it's like kind of. Um, Besides the point, you know, when you go to film school, it's all about like production and, and, and like, how do you, how do you change a lens or whatever? It's very (laughs) practical stuff like that. But then the whole core of it, the soul of it is, is, is so powerful and not um, explored enough, I think, personally. I mean, it's just like religion. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. um, We have these open ended stories and you can, obviously take them and have them lead you down incredibly destructive paths. And we don't need to look far to find examples of that big and small. And clearly they wouldn't have lasted this long if they didn't also um, elevate people and lead them down incredibly positive and affirming and loving paths. Daniel, you were saying, um, you know, on one hand you have, moved pretty far away from where you were raised. On the other hand, you have an appreciation for those values and that grounding that came from it. And and I guess you were really positioned to see the good and the bad of religion. And, uh, and some people, when they walk away, slam the door. And other people, when they walk away, are able to look back and say, I see the good and I also see why it isn't right for me right now. And that feels like the mark of emotional health right <laughs> to be able to to recognize that that things aren't black and white and that uh that it's these are tools and the question is what are we going to do with them is there a responsibility then in the proctors or to us having this conversation of how we have the conversation is that a practice that's just for us i know rabbi adam you love this vonnegut quote that uh, the purpose of life is to be the eyes, ears, and conscious of the creator of the universe, um, which is a beautiful thought. But my goodness, the responsibility that lies in that seems enormous. Uh, How do we focus in on not only the work that should transform us, but others? It's all lech lecha. Like it's all setting out on a journey being aware that you don't know where the journey is necessarily headed and that there's a lot of risk in it and you also can't not go because if you don't go you're paralyzed Hmm. so yeah having these conversations is dangerous and telling stories is dangerous 
because you don't know what the uh, interpretations are going to look like and you don't know all of the potential hidden pitfalls and, and landmines even but you can't not have the conversations and you can't not tell the stories you can't let the fear of misinterpretation um close the door for the rest of us to find the beautiful stuff right hmm. totally yeah it's no that's it's totally true that like a lot of this is being discussed in kind of a vacuum and real in reality like stories are essential to to you know culture to society to just even the individual's growth um i guess one interesting thing or one interesting thing to kind of connect back to is this this idea of the the guardrail you know the the um the story of abraham almost sacrificing isaac kind of serves as as one of those things and i'm wondering what what are the what are useful uh guardrails for modern religion specifically modern christian or like modern american religion like how because it is interesting that like this is like a, a generalization based on just the people that i know but you know most people that i know who are practice, practicing uh, judaism are way more open and way more um like the, the their whole thing is like they don't know the answers which i think is lovely and beautiful i think that's like the the, the tr- like the truest way to exist is to kind of put walk through life and realize that everything is always changing and everything is everything is is unknown you know until it's right in front of your face um whereas like i think right now one of the big problems with uh christianity that i knew when i grew up with was that like it was it was it was very scary to be wrong or to be found um (laughs) uh lacking in in the answers um and so uh and I, th- I think that does kind of breed a certain uh, kind of dangerous mindset that can evolve and, and become, you know, what it is today, I guess. But I'm wondering what kind of things that you you practice and preach in, in your religion that other <laughs> other religions can learn from or even storytellers can learn from. Um, because I, I do think you're right. We're going to be making stories. We're going to be practicing religion no matter what. It's 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 all essential to to, to our communities. So, like, how do we... How do we show how people to do it the right way, or, or at least from my limited perspective, the right way? So there's this concept that comes out of the Talmud, out of this compendium of wisdom and debates um, from 2,000 years ago. The concept is called Machloket L'Shem Shemayim. Machloket means uh, discussion or, or debate or argument. L'Shem Shemayim is for the sake of heaven. Like, what's a debate for the sake of heaven? And there's a whole conversation about what counts as machloket l'shem shemayim and what's machloket shalo l'shem shemayim that's not for the sake of heaven. Hmm. And how do you distinguish between the two? How do you distinguish between debates that open up worlds and debates that shut them down or debates that um, treat people with dignity and debates that debase? Um, And... And I think that applies interpersonally. And I think it applies internally also. Like, how do we, what are the questions that we need to be asking ourselves that are for the sake of heaven, that are for the sake of getting toward truth and happiness? And what are the arguments that we have running in our head that aren't serving us, that are just paralyzing us um, and, uh, and, 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 and keeping us in a stuck place? I think that's a really useful framework mm. um, for these conversations. We we have certainly seen examples in recent weeks of 
machlokat shalol l'shem shemayim of debates that aren't leading us in a direction of anything good. Um, but I don't think we close the door on the possibility that there could be. Yeah, no, that's really that's that's really great. That reminds me of um, I think it was Steve Jobs was writing an email to Murdoch about Fox News, and he was talking about how uh, there wasn't uh, the 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 battle wasn't left versus right or anything like that. It was actually what is what is constructive, what versus what is destructive, and like that is the that is the true dichotomy, and that is really what we should be looking at. And I I, I totally I totally agree that like. Um, everything that's kind of come out of political discourse for the past couple of years feels very much on the destructive side and not productive. And, um, yeah, figuring out how we can popularize this idea. Uh, I, I won't be able to pronounce any of, any of the things that you just said, but, but I, I, I definitely, uh, I like, I like the sentiment and it makes a lot of sense. Um, because, just as a contrast to to that, growing up um, in my church, one of the you know the Christian speak jargon stuff that people would say was whether or not a conversation was edifying. Is this edifying? Is this action edifying? Is this song edifying? Um, and a lot of it came. It just came down to what like it was a. a, a a conversation of purity, you know, is this going to keep me pure? Is this, which was, is very different from whether or not I'm going to be constructive versus destructive or, you know, or whether or not this is something that, that uplifts or, um, push, pushes people down. It was all about, um, purity, which be, is a very dangerous thing to, to start talking about in general because nothing in life is, is, is truly pure. It's always gray. Like you, like you, you mentioned before. Um, I feel like those, that kind of is an interesting picture and in, into how I would, how the differences between how uh, you teach and how I was raised. Um, yeah. What is constructive? What is <laughs> that? I, I feel like that's such a, um, such a simple question that um, we don't ask enough. Well, Dan, I um, hope that you come back to uh, answer that question over and over with us, um, because this conversation felt very constructive and uh, at least has led me into some uh, some beautiful thoughts. So I just want to thank you both for taking the time to study Torah together. It's been uh, an absolute honor. And really, Dan, you got to come back. I know. I feel like we just started. We just started scratching the surface. This was this was really interesting. I, next time you do this, Rabbi Adam, you need to get like a whiteboard so you can write all this stuff down. So I can actually. <laughs> I'm a visual learner, so you know the the podcast isn't isn't sufficient for me. But uh, <laughs> we'll text you some some uh, some Hebrew words. There we go. That that's mostly what I wanted. That sounds great. <laughs> this has been an absolute pleasure, and uh, wishing y'all a Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you guys. The way I see it, both Abraham and Dan's journeys are stories of faith. Each started in different places, and each will end in different places. But stories of faith go on for as long as the protagonist exists. So, thank you for joining me on my journey. If you're enjoying our show, please don't forget to rate and leave us a review. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host is Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Our guest today was Daniel Kwan. Artwork by Julia Pott. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. See you next week.